Conference Special. The latest news from the Party Conference as it happens. Only on Tory Radio. Once again, Toy Radio is taking the opportunity to challenge the chairman. Questions have been submitted by listeners of both Toy Radio and readers of uh, Conservative Home. Today we're not in the heart of Westminster, but we're at a bustling, if somewhat very rainy, Conservative Party conference down in Bournemouth. First of all, Francis, once again, can I thank you for taking the time to uh, join us today? It's a pleasure. Uh, I, I want to take, first of all, take issue with David Cameron. He said he's so gloomy, he often makes Gordon Brown look like a ray of sunshine. Whereas you're very jolly. Yes, I think it was, uh, I think it was reasonably affectionately said. Um, but no, I know I've got the, I've got the sort of uh, private Fraser reputation, um, which I mentioned in my speech yesterday. Um, but no, I'm actually very, op- I am very optimistic. Um, I got the reputation for being always gloomy because I felt for a long time you know, I felt like there weren't very many of us who were saying to the party, look, we have got a real problem, and unless we deal with the problem, you know, we're never going to be able to, to serve the country. Um, so that was when I got the reputation. But I'm actually an immensely cheerful fellow. A year ago, many in the party were expecting that uh, David was going to be leader of the party. Possibly they were expecting a different David. Much has happened in the last year. What, in your view, do you think the party should be most proud about? I don't know why you say they're expecting a different David. He was very upfront. Um, he he said the party needed to change. He said how, how it needed to change, um, and I think they possibly weren't expecting a pace of change that is quite so um, vigorous. But you know we don't have long. We've got to win the next election. The government's screwing up um, big time now. Um, we've got to be a, a really appealing alternative. And so we don't have the time, the luxury of time. What should we be most proud of? Um, I think as, a, as party chairman, I would say I'm, I'm most proud of our performance in the local elections, you know, breaking the 40% barrier, um, our best local election result for 21 years. Mm. Um, we're hoping for f- further progress in the hugely important all-out elections, um, well, right across England, but um, Scotland and Wales with devolved uh, elections as well. This is going to be a huge effort. So, you know, we had more candidates than any other party. I hope we'll do the same this time. And I was just very struck as I went around campaigning in loads of different places. I was struck by the number of activists, um, how many younger activists there were, the enthusiasm, the excitement. It was patchy, places where we weren't beginning to get that kind of lift off. Um, and surprisingly patchy. I mean, some sort of supposedly safe conservative areas where there wasn't that kind of vigour. Other places where we have very little uh, on the on the ground, but actually they were generating energy and excitement. So, you know, d- different pla- things, different places. The Built to Last document received a, a resounding thumbs up, but turnout was really low. Why do you think that was? And do you think it in any way undermines the results at all? No, I don't think it undermines it. Why was it um, so low? I think we're probably not, um, at heart, a very ideological party. Um, we uh, became, I suppose, parts of the party became, I guess, in the 90s particularly, rather sort of vigorously ideological, and there's still some of that left. Um, but uh, you know what we're doing with the Conservative Party is taking it back to the mainstream of British politics, back, as David put it in his speech yesterday, onto the centre ground where um, elections 
actually are won or lost. We tend to think now that Thatcher took the party way off to the right. She didn't. She simply put it on the common ground against a Labour Party which was lurching to the left. Um, that was where the great sort of gap came. In the 70s and 80s, the Labour Party was disappearing in a sort of vapour trail uh, off the edge of the left-hand edge of the radar screen, to mix the metaphor. Um, so uh, putting us where we should be in, in the mainstream, in the centre ground, um, is, um, is, is the right thing to do. Um, but I think um, most of our members cheerfully said, OK, that's fine, mm. but, you know... Also, we didn't actually leave very much time for them to to vote, and I know some people didn't get their uh, ballot papers, I'm told, till after the thing closed. As always, we always touch upon the A-list, something that never yep. never seems to go away. It recently, I don't know how true it is, it recently came to light that uh, uh, there's a belief that, that men make up 70% of the candidates' list and also 70% of the new applicants to the list. Does this mean that, that good men are going to be actively discriminated against to, to, to get more women onto the A-list? Well, yes, I guess it does. I don't think there's any getting around that. Um, but equally, you know, the, these figures did get disclosed and they're broadly, broadly right. Um, but actually, a lot of people, um, when they saw those numbers, said, well, why on earth haven't you been saying that? Because that actually makes the case for having a priority list which corrects the balance. Um, and... Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, we do very much want more uh, women to apply to the overall list, and, and a lot more are, but it is still the case that the balance of applicants to the list hasn't changed mm. as much as we would hope. On the subject of, of the A-list, uh, a lot of candidates were, were interested to see that former Labour parliamentary candidate actually stood against yourself, has made it onto the A-list. What, in, in your view, did you think that that candidate has to offer that perhaps others who, who are feeling a bit down that, that because they see themselves as if they've actively worked for the party for many years, you know, they're not on it. They're, they're probably feeling slightly bitter. Well, I mean, there are other people who've gone on the list who are new to the party, um, either because they've been in another party or been in no party. Um, and, you know, I've got to make the point again that being on the candidates list or the priority list is not a sort of long service medal. Um, it is about people who will, in the judgment of the panel that makes the decisions, will be um, the best candidates, and, and ref but, but will also be a balanced uh, group of candidates. Um, you know, the, the, the candidate you referred to, Ray Chishti, um, I do know him obviously very well. Um, I know that he's a fantastic campaigner. I mean, I was as well the receiving end of his campaign uh, in Horsham, the election last year. But I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've seen loads of evidence of him being a really barnstorming campaigning councillor in Medway, uh, where he is. Um, I think he's got a lot to offer, but you know, he's had to take his chance with with everybody else in in, in the in the mix in the process. The, the A list still, some would say, isn't delivering enough women candidates. Certainly in winnable seats. What more and can any more be done? Well, we have made some changes over the summer to the selection process, um, some of which will, um, we've given a different choice of, of selection procedures. Um, and um, I think one of them particularly may may help the what we call the big event, where which is very much something the senior volunteers in the party suggested, that you have a general meeting, as it were, before um, to, to, to select the shortlist. Um, which you can do either by sort of very, very short speeches and Q&A from 
eight to ten candidates or what I think probably works better and most of them seem to be doing which is sort of speed dating where you get members around different tables and the candidates rotate around and which is almost a better test of what you need in a parliamentary candidate which is much more as you know um, is much more about your ability to interact with a, a smaller group in a smaller group um, and, and so I think that will help but actually when you look at the selections um, done in the first round um, uh, I, I'm not sure all these figures are exactly right but I think there were 22 selections in the first round in the summer uh, I think 12 of those uh, were priority list candidates and 10 were local candidates and the 12 were more or less 50-50 men and women the 10 local candidates were overwhelmingly men um, so you know, I think that I, I would say that's evidence that the priority list is working, is delivering a, a, a better balance. It's the, um, if you like, the intrusion of, of many more local candidates that, that ends up distorting it. Since we, we last spoke, one, one of the big announcements uh, is, is the new party logo, which is flying on all the flagpoles outside the hotel now. It's apparently cost uh, £40,000. I know the, uh, a chap from the Telegraph wanted me to, to ask you, you know, do the leaves fall off in winter? But, <laughs> but, but what is the new logo supposed to represent? And, and do you think any of this criticism was justified? Um, well, everyone has a view about logos, you know, because it's there, it's in your face, um, and you know, everyone's got an opinion about it. Mostly the opinion's been uh, pretty favourable. What does it represent? It represents real um, long-term conservative values, I'd say. Um, uh, permanence, you know, there's something British uh, about it. It's organic, it's evolutionary, um, it's, it's green, but it's long-term. I mean, it has a sense of, of permanence and renewal and... I think it's all the, the values are, 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 are good values associated with it. Um, the cost um, was, I mean, everyone I've talked to in the business world says, how on earth did you manage to get it done so cheap? Mm-hmm. Because it's not just the design fee um, in, in there. There's all the rollout, I mean, the development, all the kit. Um, and it's been, actually, people in the voluntary party, by and large, have been um, really appreciative for the way the CCHQ team have dealt with it because we did involve people early on in August before the thing was finalised just to make sure we were sort of testing out you know, does it work in all the formats that people need to use it in um, and uh, so that was, that was a good process and uh, no, I think it's, it's gone down well James Hellyer asks uh, that one year ago he says that you spoke to conference uh, to tell us that the party's policies were popular but that they were damaged by the association with the party's brand. In his view, how then does the abandonment of some of these supposedly popular policies since last year's conference represent a solution to the problem? Well, I'm not sure. Um, you know, the, the um, criticism there is that we don't have enough policies. Um, we're not... Uh, dropping policies because they're popular or unpopular, we're dropping policies because these were policies for the last election uh, and we need now to be developing policies for the next election you know, Britain in 2009 2010 is going to be a different country from 2005 um, <clears throat> and you know, the world changed on 9-11, it changed again or Britain changed mm. again on 7-7 so um, for every election, 
you start again a policy renewal process. Um, any party that thought it appropriate just to have a sort of standing set of policies that you just you know, roll, roll over every time would be absurd. So it might be whether they're popular or unpopular, it's simply whether they're appropriate for the Britain that we're aspiring to govern. Hmm. I've got. A f- I think it's more of a philosophical question. The next one. One reader asks whether you've read Jane- James Bartholomew's Welfare State We're In. After reading his book, he believes it- it's hard to see any practical justification for any significant state provision of certain services. Do you agree with with, with that proposition? Well, I haven't read uh, James's book, um, although I I plan to in a spare moment, um, sometime, spare <laughs> few hours. Um, and you know, I think. Uh, as far as I understand it, he's mounting the case for um, there being greater pluralism in, in provision, and I think that's right. And that's almost now sort of consensus. Um, the Labour Party is talking about greater pluralism in education, health, um, and I think that's completely appropriate. Is it the same as saying there should be no state provision? Uh, I don't. I would. I don't go that far. Um, I think um, a, a mixed economy is is appropriate, um, private, um, not for profit, um, state provision, uh, and I don't think I don't have a dogmatic view about it, uh, and I don't think um, a dogmatic view is appropriate. The last time we spoke was after the uh, Bromley by-election. HF asks, what exactly has been done, have you done, to ensure that our parliamentary by-election capability is made fit for purpose? Well, we are um, two things, really. We um, are recruiting a volunteer task force, which I've always thought of as being a sort of territorial army, people who will commit um, up to sort of a couple of weeks a year for by-election, not just parliamentary by-elections, but council by-elections as well, to create a sort of campaign a professional campaign team, but with a sort of a, a, a large army of, of volunteers who will not just do campaigning, but will take be equipped to take on leadership role <coughs> in particular by elections. And um, it's, it'll take time to build that up. Paul Marland, um, who left the board last well this spring, and he's a former MP as well, is leading the recruitment of that, and it's making good progress. Um, there'll be quite a lot of um, training being done um, with the combination of professionals, a group of MPs that Grant Shapps has assembled, mostly younger MPs but with a particular campaigning bent. Um, And the in-house team, the MPs group and the volunteer task force will form a very broad by-election executive, if you like, who will... Um, who will who will drive this work? And they will not only be there to do uh, work on parliamentary by elections, but also, let's say, local council by elections. In addition, I think to go in to target seats where there's a particular campaigning deficiency, um, to to work to build up the campaigning capability, find new members, activists, and so on. So mm. they're going to be pretty busy over the next few years. <laughs> Plenty to do. One anonymous reader, uh, not 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 your air, not not your remit. But they're, they're asking, why can't the party say more on tax? Businesses say they're taxed too much, hard-working people, not rich people. Single-parent families, uh, like them, he says, uh, are being taxed too much. Why can't the party say something on this? Well, we do say things on tax. It's a bit of a myth that we're somehow stum on the subject of tax. 
Um, what we aren't going to do, though, is make a cast-iron commitment to cut taxes at the next election. Um, and you know, for those who are pa- passionate about tax cuts and they say, well, it worked for us in the 1980s, um, I just recommend to go and read the manifestos we stood for election on in 79, 83 and 87, where you won't find a single cast-iron commitment to cut taxes. What you will have had then, and what I hope people will get now, is a sense that we are, are we have a very strong preference uh, for lower taxes. We know that you not only have a more vigorous economy, but a more cohesive society, where people do more for each other, where they take more, in David's phrase, more social responsibility. Uh, when you know the state does a bit less over time, people do more, mm-hmm. and, and that's a, um, a a more positive way of putting it. So we strong preference, strong sense of direction um, from it all, but we're not going to make commitments. Um, and you know, look back to 1979, what did the Thatcher government do? It actually raised taxes. Why? The public finances were shot to pieces. You know, what we then called a PSBR was now you know, called public sector deficit, I suppose. Mm. But it's a black, it was a huge black hole in the public finances. And what we were doing then was putting economic stability before tax cuts, which is exactly what we're saying now, that we are not going to play ducks and drakes with what people care most about, which is their mortgages and their jobs, uh, in favour of um, a commitment to tax cuts. Another reader wants to ask, I've called it a philosophical question, but it's more about the character of MPs, which they believe should be put to every MP. How much would you be prepared to lie deceive the public or betray your beliefs in order to advance your career? Have you ever done any of those things in order to move on and get ahead in your political career? Well, it's a, I'm not sure it's a philosophical question. I mean, it's a very practical question, but um, a good one. And uh, in answer to the question, how much would you be able to lie and deceive the public, betray your beliefs? You ought not to at all. Um, but um, just on, in terms of betraying your beliefs... It's quite an important. That is a sort of philosophical issue, because um, there is a view that says that you know we should all be absolutely sea green, incorruptibles, um, and you never ever say anything that you don't absolutely believe in. But actually, um, in huge areas of our lives, we are constantly compromising. You know, you're, if you're part of a team, unless you're a, a totally arrogant individual who's totally convinced that you're right about everything uh, and, you know, everyone else is out of step except you, in which case you're impossible to work with <laughs> um, and impossible to be part of a team. You know, if you're part of a team, if you're part of a shadow cabinet, do does every member of the shadow cabinet agree about every single thing? Of course not, because we're all thinking, sentient beings with independent minds. When you create a team, you bring together clever thinking people who work out what their collective mm. view is, um, and you subscribe to a collective view. Now, if um, you were being asked to subscribe to something which you found anathema, then obviously you wouldn't stay there. You wouldn't be part of it. You wouldn't actively promote something you really find objectionable. But um, reaching an agreed position on a subject which actually wouldn't have been your chosen position but you concede that the majority of your colleagues may be right about it um, 
anyway, if they're not right, they're still in the majority. That's part of what you do for a political party to be effective. So there's no sort of hard and fast rule. Yeah. Um, but obviously you shouldn't lie and deceive. But, you know, you're not always saying everything um, that you believe. You should yeah. never say things that you deeply don't believe, clearly. Yeah. Colin comments that, I understand that the Conservative Party wishes to devolve decision-making in services like health and education close to people. Unless you actually privatise them, put in legal and economic control beyond the grasp of government, how can you stop Labour reasserting central control when they get in next time? Well, you can't, um, any more than you can stop them re-nationalising things that have been privatised. Um, there, there's no way you, all the good things we plan to do can all be reversed by Labour, uh, which is one reason why we hope we'll win and stay winning. Merrill hopeful uh, Nick Bowles, he's brought down a, a red London London bus down, down to Bournemouth and I'd recommend anyone to, to go and have a, a quick look round. Emma asks, who do you side with on the question of Ken Livingstone's decision to abolish the Routemaster bus in London? Policy Exchange, with a, which published a pamphlet attacking the decision, or Jackie Lay, Conservative Shadow Minister of London, who supported the abolition? Well, a de- de- delicate one, this. I can't claim to be an expert <laughs> on the great Routemaster um, debate um, but uh, and, and policy exchange obviously I respect greatly I was its founder um, and Nick Bowles is a dear friend and, and I'm a huge admirer of his so who am I to differ from their view um, but, uh, Jackie Lay's taken a considered view of it so you know solidarity collective action I'm on her side <laughs> Would would you agree with or even recommend a Conservative parliamentary candidate in a marginal seat signing up to the Better Off Out campaign if UKIP promised not to field a candidate in their constituency in the next general election? No, I wouldn't. Um, I uh, the Better Off Out campaign perfectly, you know, understand what they're on about. Um, but it is not the Conservative Party's view that we should be out of the European Union. It is our view that we should work with others, partners, in to reform it to make it more appropriate, more decentralised, more appropriate for the modern network world that we're in rather than relating it back to the old block Europe, block world that it was born into. So I don't recommend anyone to contemplate signing up to the Better Off Out campaign. Um, We'll take on UKIP, um, who are a fringe party. Um, I don't um, particularly respect what they're about. Um, and we should be confident enough to mount a, the case for our, the approach to Europe, which uh, we've set out. The, the next question, I, I'm assuming, is, is from a non-A-lister. He, he or she asks, why were only priority list and already selected candidates invited to take part in the Dragon's Den thing at conference? Are the rest <laughs> of us so awful? No, you're all wonderful. You're all absolutely wonderful. Um, and there'll be loads of opportunities to... Uh, to take part in the hot topic debates and many other debates at conference, and I hope you all will. As we as we nearing the end of the interview, you'll be pleased to know only one question on Europe today. One reader asks, "What steps are you taking to ensure that candidates for the European slate agree with the European policies of the party? Will you, as chairman, or indeed uh, William Hague, as part of deciding what MEPs should be on the next candidates list for Europe, be assessing the performance?" of each of our present MEPs in terms of attendance and how closely they've followed the party's European policy? Well, we're not going to become Stalinist um, in this. We haven't, uh, to be honest, started to give much thought to the process of how we select 
candidates for the European Parliament. It's not until 2009. Um, so we won't have to select candidates until, I guess, 2008. I think last time they were selected about a year in advance. Um, so um, early days uh, for that uh, for that discussion. Um, but um, uh, I'm interested in people's views, actually, on how we should go about this process. Should we do it the same way as before? Should Are there different ways of potentially selecting the lists? So I'm sure people will be willing to, to give some feedback. Get posting. A quick question now on, on blogging. David Cameron has, has blogged during his visit to India, and he now has a new blog at webcameron.org.uk. The Lib Dems had a bloggers' reception and awards ceremony in Brighton. Labour had an official blogger for their conference. And we topped it all today by having not only a bloggers' stand, but but you came and, and met everybody and the media came. There was a bit of a frenzy there to find out what all this blogging thing's all about. Is this a sign that, that blogging, particularly pot- political blogging, has come of age? And what do you think the future may hold? Well, I'm not sure it's come of age yet, because it is very young yet still. But what I think it is it absolutely clear is that it's a permanent feature of the political landscape now um, and it will change and develop I can't, you know, predict the future I can predict anything except the future as Sam <laughs> Goldwyn once said um, but it's very exciting and it's challenging um, and because it's it is the, the, the blogosphere is the reverse of control free world, uh, one of the reasons I think that people are fed up with conventional politics is that it all seems to be top-down, lecturing, preaching, um, and, and the blogosphere is all, all grassroots up. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's much less controllable. It's not always very comfortable. I have noticed that not everybody who posts on um, <laughs> blog sites are absolutely unadulterated fans of me, but that's okay. Well, reasonably okay. Um, but... Um, but I think it's. But I love the vigor. I love the immediacy of it. Um, and someone said the other day, actually, I, I did get the answer right. Really, uh, why is it that there's much more blogging activity on the right of centre than on the left? And the answer is actually blindingly obvious. It's because that's where the action is. That's where the intellectual ferment is. That's where the idea development is coming. And that's. And and so it's got, it's bound to be. It's raw. Um, it's vigorous, it's challenging for an establishment politician like me. It's not always comfortable, um, but it's life. Mm. I mean, it's raw, pulsating life, and, you know, well, bring it on. Mm. Finally, uh, conference is, is, I think you used the word, it's pulsating. There seems to be a lot more people here than there have been in previous years. What message would you want members and particularly sort of new attendees to take away from conference this year? That this is where the future lies, that we are we are the future. Um, we are the party with um, a clear sense of direction about what kind of Britain we want this to be, uh, a Britain where there is a much stronger sense of social responsibility, personal, corporate... Um, uh, but people taking community responsibility, family responsibility. Um, and, and that's a deeply Tory message, but that's an, an ancient, timeless, conservative uh, approach, um, which um, I think people respond to. Um, 
and I think they'll hear David in his speech yesterday was very clear about why is it we're not rolling out policies every day and the metaphor he used was was vivid and persuasive that when you're building a house you start preparing the ground that's what we've been doing over these 10 months since he was elected Uh, you then dig the foundations and that's what we're doing um, in the course of this week and in the months ahead um, with the policy groups and then you start to put the brickwork into place and the brickwork is the um, individual policies but it's got to be coherent you know, you've got to start with the design of what you want the house broadly to look like before you start building the policies. Start with the bigger picture and the sense of direction, direction of travel. And, and that's what we're in the process of doing. So I hope people will go away from here uh, excited, pumped up, um, you know, seeing that we are now the party that can do anything if we set about it wholeheartedly and unitedly enough. Um, will have left, I think, with under no illusion whatsoever that as a party we have to continue to change. I think the message they will have had yesterday, not just from me and from David, from whom you almost expect it, but from William Haig and David Davis, that this message of change in the party is core and it's absolutely what we're about. The leadership of this party really means it. Um, And I think members heard it. Uh, liked it, saw the point, and we'll get going with it. Once again, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you today. I know the pressure's on your diary, so uh, I know the listeners appreciate getting uh, a half an hour slot with you. On behalf of Toy Radio, can I say, Francis Maud, thank you for talking to us once again today. Jonathan, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. To discuss sponsorship opportunities, email editor at toryradio.com. Do it now.